So I just want to say as a representative for CSL White Rock, I recognize that I'm a settler on this land and I am grateful and honored to live and operate on the traditional and ancestral and unceded territory of the Coast Salish Nation. I want to thank the first peoples who continue to live on these lands and care for them along with the waters and all that is above and all that is below. So I'd like to welcome any first time guests. Uh, if you're on Zoom first time, let us know in the chat and in the room here, come and chat to myself or Jill or Diane and Georgia, our practitioners. Uh, we'd love to, to say hello. But now I'm going to turn it over to Nathan. As long as the rivers flow. As long as the grass is green, as long as the children grow, salmon are going to swim upstream. Everybody wants to come home. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit on our way home. One more time. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit. We are not alone. As long as the mountains stand, as long as the eagles fly, sun lights up the land. Forests are going to reach for the sky. Everybody wants to come home. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit on our way home. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit. We are not alone. Let's sing that again. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit on our way home. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit. We are all one spirit. We are not alone. Because everybody wants to come home. So again, today, I just um, note about CSL White Rock. We're an inclusive spiritual community and learning center. We teach spiritual principles and offer tools to use in all areas of our life regularly and consistently. Our life flourishes and flows out of ease and grace when we practice these teachings and the tools. And our teaching is based on four cornerstone beliefs. There is one life, and that life is the source of all things. And the second one is we are spirit having a human experience. The third is nothing outside of us needs to change for us to be happy. It is all the inner work that we all do. And as a spiritual community, we're here to walk each other home. 
So our vision at CSL White Rock is that we're a loving, vibrant world that works for all. And so welcome everyone, and thank you so much for being here with us today. I'll just take a moment to settle in. <clears throat> As we take into prayer, this moment, this time, this breath, knowing that there is one life, one love, one universal divine that is operating right here, right now, in and through all of us, and especially through technology today. <laughs> So today I claim the joy and the laughter and the ease and grace of today's unfoldment and that the joy bubbles up within us as we learn from Reverend Savannah, as we listen to Nathan, as we go through the day. I just know that it will all turn out exactly the way that it is meant to and we will all be inspired today. So with gratitude, I release these words, the law of mind, knowing that right action is already happening. It is already so. And I ask you to join me in saying, and so it is. We bring ourselves into the presence. Nathan so beautifully did that with his music. To feel the soulfulness in the communities and the spaces that we occupy, I think is super important for our spirit. Thank you for that. It's always good to ground. Um, yes, uh, this place has a special um, space in my heart. Although I haven't um, spoken directly to you, you know, in this community, I was telling um, a few people that I haven't been in Vancouver area since 2014. So the last, this is kind of a funny thing, but the last time I was here, I was speaking at a CSL convention conference. Uh, 2014, I don't remember where it was in downtown Vancouver, but I was the opening act. 10 minutes was all they gave me. And for a minister, that is hard to say what you want to say in 10 minutes. I think I was a ministerial student at the time, so I was just finishing my studies, and I opened for the famous Les Brown. Do you know who that is? If you don't know who that is, Les Brown. Uh, used to be a radio DJ back in the 70s, and he used to have like the Jackson 5 and Diana Ross on his show. And then he did this motivational speaking thing where he'd have this hour and a half gig. I don't know how he spoke for an hour and a half without boring people to death, but I got to open for him. And I had just returned from living in Egypt and Cairo, and I kind of had a little culture shock um, trying to reintegrate back into U.S. you know culture. And I just remember being so moved because, I, again, I hadn't been on the stage for a really long time. There was like four to 500 people in the audience, and I was so scared, and my knees were knocking on stage. I don't know if you've ever had that happen before. It's not happening today, thankfully. Um, but I remember him quoting a few of, he was paying attention because he quoted a few things that I had said in his talk. And uh, if you can Google this, if you want to find the actual talk, you can just Google it. Uh, my name uh, for the Vancouver Convention. I was not very seasoned back then. And so it's really beautiful to see where I've come eight years later to being here with you all. And I said this on Zoom, that this community is one of those communities where it's this palpable, um, heartfelt feeling that you can feel on Zoom, but I now get to feel it even more so here. So thank you so much for having me. Um, 
Super grateful. And uh, I almost wore my cowboy boots because I am from West Texas. And I heard Canadians have the same protection. I don't know if that's true, but way here and so today my talk is all about doing no harm. Doing no harm. One of the metrics and guides that I've used in my life um, in terms of what it means to be a good human when it comes to co-inhabitating with other humans on the planet with their values and beliefs and lifestyle, diverse you know, cultural and political differences, the many walks of life that we encounter, I always ask myself these questions and you might wanna take notes or you might not, you might remember it, but I offer you these four questions. Was I kind? Did I do my best? Am I forgiving? Have I owned my part and stayed on my side of the street? <laughs> and am I doing no harm? These questions help me oftentimes in life with my decision making and with my own self-doubt when that fear creeps in, you know, in my relationships, in my family, and in the world. And I was thinking about this in terms of the greater collective. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna bring us into the greater collective and the community aspect of this idea, but then I'm gonna, of course, bring it into the individual. But how does this show up in our own lives? How many of you have heard of cancel culture? Kind of a big hot term right now, cancel culture. It's, it's been on the rise in our you know, culture and society now during and after the pandemic. And I would argue that the political climate with our former, you know, the US president, formerly, the censoring of people, the fear mongering, um, the age old tactics of using propaganda to instill worry and fear and separation. It created, I think, this energy and this environment of scarcity and lack and overwhelm and worry. And all of us are like, what is this? And how do we navigate it? And what do I do? And there's just so much of this fear. And initially, cancel culture was meant to hold those people in power accountable for their actions and their words. On social media, it became this really big thing. For people, you know, it was like wrongdoing. Well, let's call them out. But now I feel what's happened is it's been misused and abused in a way to quiet, to shut down, to force people into silence, to control their platform, whether you're of this belief or that belief, because people don't agree. And I was thinking about this idea of how rampant this is in our culture, and this is an extreme idea and metaphor, but I just want you to think about it in terms of like the biblical biblical sense of the time of Jesus. It's like, I liken it to the time of stoning. Entertainment for people. We don't like this because X person said this wasn't okay. Let's just kill them, right? Let's just stone them in public humiliation. I know for me, in my own circle of people, there isn't a person in my life that is not struggling right now with mental health you know, struggling with um, depression, anxiety, worry, the unknown. I feel like every circle I'm in right now, people are talking about the unknown. Am I right about this? You have this, this feeling? Yeah. And it would be easy, I think, to lose ourselves, as many of us probably might have done during the pandemic, in a spiral of fear and worry. And yet our teaching 
It aids us and it provides us with a method, a hope, this empowered view that reminds us that we have dominion over our thoughts. We have dominion even over conditions. And more importantly, we have the tools. So I look at the people in my life who may not have access to this teaching or they do, they just don't know it. And I think about how they say, well, I need therapy or I need support. And the difference in those people and maybe me or those of you here and on Zoom is you have the tools. You actually have the tools right in front of you. And so what I've been experiencing is this constant realigning with the spiritual path of when I go down into the spiral of my own depths, I have to come back to what I know to be true deep, deep in, in there. And so what I've been leaning into is being kind forgiving myself and others, doing my best, owning my part, and my doing harm to others. And what I specifically want to talk about in those four or five things is doing no harm. What does it mean to do no harm? When faced with a difficult conversation you have to have with someone or a situation, how do I or you, how do you show up lovingly honestly and boldly when you're faced with a disagreement with someone at work in your family in the world <laughs> how you think things should be what does it mean to do no harm i've been interviewing so one of my other jobs is i am a i was a date expert and a date coach for the popular app match.com so nobody knew, has known that but I'm also managing a team of 10 data experts right now. And I've been in the process of hiring. And one of the questions that I ask them, and I also ask clients when I'm working with them is, how do you address conflict? What do you think their answer is? I don't. <laughs> what else? I avoid. You nailed it. And it always makes me kind of laugh to myself when I hear this because that seems like the right answer like that is the right answer I avoid conflict at all costs I don't want to go there but I want to take it deeper than that because often I don't think it's the conflict itself that they're afraid of it's the underbelly it's the fear of speaking up it's the fear of speaking out it's the fear of rejection, of being canceled, of the humiliation. What if they're wrong? What if I embarrass myself? What if I'm humiliated? What if I'm ostracized? What if the conflict or the fracture, you thought of it in that sense, or the disappointment or that challenge was merely information? What if it was a deeper calling maybe to lean into our discomfort, to really tune into our growing edge? I would much rather hear that answer of like, hmm, conflict is information. It forces me to look at, am I connected to my values deeply? Do I know what I believe in? Do I know how I feel? Do I express myself and communicate my needs and desires openly with people and honestly? And do I feel that I can be authentic in doing so? It's a big task, I think. I see head shaking. The outcome though, in practicing this could actually be everything that you want. With the intent of, am I kind? You're gonna get this at the very end, I'm sure of it. Am I kind? Am I doing my best? 
Am I giving people the benefit of the doubt? Am I owning my part? Am I taking accountability? And am I doing no harm? I want my words and my actions and my thoughts to align with healthy ways of being. This is why the boundaries course that I'm doing this afternoon is so important. It is like the fundamental thing of every relationship we have. How do I, again, how do I express my need, my desires, my wants to someone else when we may disagree? And can that person meet that? How do I honor myself? How do I tell the truth? For a lot of people I find, especially like in these interviews, people say what you want them, you know, what they think you want to hear. It's difficult to tell the truth. But I think the more we practice telling the truth, again, setting boundaries with people, learning what that even means, the more we do it and confront those fears, then you start to see the reciprocal nature of how people honor and respect us. It's just the basics of, of worthiness. I can tell who the boundaries people are and who the non-boundaries people are. Can you? Maybe? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the, the way that I know is that they're led by something internal. They don't waver. They're led by something within themselves. There's a knowing, there's an honoring of themselves so much that you can't help but honor them in their presence because you feel safe with them. Brene Brown was quoted as once saying that the most compassionate people in the world are the most boundaries people. Why do you think that is? They know themselves. They know their worthiness. They know they know what they need and want. They know how to communicate that those needs. I think that people who can't address conflict or discomfort oftentimes don't allow grace. And that was such a beautiful song to help me with this because people who run from conflict and avoid it often don't allow grace because why? Well, we feel safe with people that we trust. And so therefore, we sometimes, I think, find ourselves in sinking sand and on this ground is moving, but we're not grounded. Imagine what this could do if we could speak the truth always in our families and our relationships, but what would that look like in organizations and communities? When we don't have clear boundaries or agreements, shared values, uh, we distrust. One of the things that I'm bringing into this date coaching realm for this billion dollar company that they've probably never seen before in corporate America is mindfulness. So every Thursday with my team, I have a huddle with them and we go into meditative practice. And for many of them, this is such a new experience. They have no idea that I'm like bringing new thought principles into every single interaction and they have no idea what's going on, but they know this feels good. Could we do more of that? I had one coach say to me recently, she said, Savannah, I've never seen conscious leadership like this before in any workplace I've ever been in. And the way that I structured it, and of course, I didn't ask for permission and I didn't, um, tiptoe either, just spoke the truth. And I came into the group and I said, I want to have shared agreements on my team. And the question I ask every single coach that I hire is, what is it that makes you feel safe to be authentically you in a group? And they're like, what? No one's ever asked me that. I don't know if I've ever felt safe in my life 
let alone how to express it in a group such as this, right? But what it's done is it's created a vulnerability and a trust there, which is what I think it would be really helpful in most communities, right? If we could have those hard conversations, if we could uh, address conflict head on. Then there is the doing no harm to the self, which to me is like the biggest one because it all starts here, right? How many of you would say that you're harder on yourself than others? I think everybody in the room is probably more self-critical than we are on others. Instead of allowing grace and self-forgiveness, we judge, we dishonor, we attack, we get down on ourselves, we abandon ourselves for other people, we put someone else's needs before our own to uphold some status quo, to make ourselves believe that if we do more, my doing this, then I will be worthy and good enough. High functioning codependency right here. <laughs> Again, this is what I'll be addressing this afternoon. We abandon ourselves to not have to face that separation, that rejection, that betrayal. And yet the self-abandoning is the thing that creates that which we don't want. So we reject the self and we betray our own self. Maybe you had a, a tough parenting moment. You didn't know what to say, or maybe you had a disagreement with a family member or coworker. Maybe it's that self-talk in the mirror when you put something on. You're like, should I have worn this this morning? Is this going to be too revealing? I often get that a lot. We're overworked. Um, it could be that we've learned to cope with eating unhealthily, over-functioning, controlling, acquiescing, making sure that everything is perfect for our company and the world around us trying to decide which decision to make. And it is so exhausting, it's exhausting. If I just get all of these things together, then I'll be happy. I hear that all the time, right? If I do this, this, and this, then I will be happy. If I can um, get this group of people to act this way, if I could just get into therapy, then things would be good and I'll be happy. How do we break those cycles? How do we get clear on communicating our needs and desires with others? Again, that's part of today's workshop. I'm pushing it because it's so So where do we allow grace? Our teaching allows grace, I think, because it says that no matter what's happened before in your life, no matter what has happened yesterday or today, you can always start fresh right now like forgiving yourself of what happened in the past, we can always start anew. The third thing that I think is important for us to look at is doing no harm in community. And that has to do with us here, right here and in the world community. How do we do no harm in a world that is so uncertain and frantic? Where does community play a role? Well, the uncertainty I think we continue to experience, our work isn't actually to change the world out there. I think that's what we get sucked into, to wait for the perfect soil to exist or the perfect situation to look a certain way before we're happy and we make the move. You've often probably heard it said that you take the leap anyway, even then you trust that the net will appear, right? We want to prepare the soil. In new thought terms, we would say we want to prepare our consciousness. And we do that by shaping and refining our consciousness. So we work with the raw materials that we have. What are those raw materials? Well, 
they are the losses, the disappointments, the challenges, the turns, they are the new beginnings. It is the rebuilding. And it's understanding what it means to be human and therefore alive. That's what I call the raw materials. It's also using these experiences to guide us into the deeper questions and the mysteries of life that allow us to be more convicted, more faithful, more awake, uh, more self-honoring. For this group, I know I've shared before in my past talks about the last few years of my own life and how I've been through a lot of loss, a lot of death, a job loss, uh, running out of money, going broke, um, having to rebuild my whole life, my business soaring and then just crashing and thinking, well, what is my purpose? Why am I doing this? What is this all about? I mean, yes, it all happens to all of us, but what it did was it humbled me. It's like a, that stone that you polish. Right? I'm like a polished stone now. And it was one of those things that I had to just move through it and allow grace to carry me and remember um, that everything can be made okay. Do you remember a few talks ago, I said to the group, can you just try to make everything okay? You remember it? Regardless of the conditions, regardless of what you're going through, can you just try to make it okay? And the person who said that to me was Reverend Edward Greenbean, our spiritual leader of this whole organization. I had a meeting with him and I was really struggling. And he said, gosh, you've really fallen into the new thought shame trap. And he's like, do you know how many ministers have this? We all have it. The new thought shame trap, like, well, I should know how to do this because I'm a minister and I should know how to pray it out and pray it away and do my affirmations and call my prayer partner. And he said, could you just make it okay that you don't know? Could you just make it okay to not be okay? There's this podcast that I follow that I highly, highly recommend if you are into that. It's called On Being. You heard of it? On Being. And in it, uh, the, the woman who leads it, she speaks of a man by the name of John Paul Lederach. He's a global peace builder. He's an American professor for international peace building at the University of Notre Dame. And he has this theory that I want to share with you called critical yeast. It is the critical yeast theory. He said this. When we think about how change happens naturally in society, we tell the story of those stories that critical mass arises. It's where we see like the protests and the bodies in the streets, like the Arab Spring, the protests. And what he's seen in many kind of conflict leading to over decades and years, he says there is this critical yeast. And he defines this as small groups of people in unlikely combinations and a new quality of relationships. He says that it is the critical yeast, these individuals who are there in the society after the upheaval of the critical mass who turn what has been upended into long-term transformation. I think about this in my own life because I was in Egypt during the Arab Spring, during the revolution. And I remember I was there right up there, the aftermath of it, of people not knowing what to do next. It's another way that we can talk about um, this generative narrative of our time and why this matters. You could call it a uh, what they refer to as fermenting a quiet before. Even amidst a very frantic, hyper-reactive, noisy world. And so the invitation 
for us is to become critical yeast. To trust in something uh, like this in the world that emphasizes something so huge. So here's the exercise. And you might just ponder this for a moment or write it down. The exercise is this. What might it mean or what does it mean for you to be critical yeast in your world of friendship, of work, of kinship, of community? It's where we get to live in the question. Are you part of the yeasty small groups of people in unlikely combinations and a new quality of relationship? And what that does is it asks us to look at the yeast that we are cultivating, our gifts, our skills, how we show up in the world individually, and of course those five questions that I asked you earlier today. But from the macro level, here's what John Lederach says. He says, to bring together spaces that create sufficient curiosity that people can listen differently. We don't have many of those. The powers of polarization are to create frozen narratives that have no space for the other. And those powers of polarization have become quite dynamic within our wider social and political context. We need surprises and surprising people. And that is what the notion of the critical yeast, the smallest ingredients in bread making that has the capacity to make everything else grow. It's not the quantity. It was the quality of how it got mixed into the mass that made a difference to the growth. I found that so inspiring to help make sense of, well, what do we do now with all that we've been through? Margaret Mead, you probably are familiar with her. She uh, said that there are in human society what she calls evolutionary clusters of small groups of people who become more purposive, conscious, and responsible. She's quoted to have said, never doubt a small group of committed people can change the world. In fact, it's the only way that it could have ever happened. So this to me really calls us to doing our own work. And that is brave work. And in order to harness that, I believe that we have to really focus on our inner life. It's this um, essential knowing of ourselves. It's a lifelong journey. It's looking at how we respond, how we evaluate, how we allow, uh, how we become. Do we give ourselves grace? Do I communicate my needs and my desires openly in a way that creates connection and safety with other people? Do I take responsibility from my side of the street? when I might be out of alignment with my words and actions. We do all of this in the, in the meantime, and as we move from one paradigm to the next, I wanna read a poem for you from David White. I love him. He wrote a poem called, Everything is Waiting for You. You might close your eyes if that feels comfortable for you. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone 
is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are inutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. So what I want you to take from this talk, if you take anything, are those five things. Let us be kind, do your best, forgive everything, own your part, do no harm, and everything is waiting for you. So let us just go within for a prayer now. Just taking that holy breath. We connect to the power and the presence of life, the wisdom, the grace, the beauty, the joy, that one power and presence that is the essence of everything and is the activity of pure spirit, of pure love. For I know that love is the greatest power there is. And that love is living and breathing and moving as each and every one of us here. So as the snow continues to fall, <laughs> we give thanks for what nature does, for we know that we are intricately connected to everything at all times. And so as I know this to be the truth for all of us, I just affirm and know that we are good and kind and gentle and graceful to ourselves. That whatever we're experiencing in the world of effect, there is that healing balm. There is something more magnificent that wants to come forward. There is information there. There is especially grace there. So I want you in this moment to just bring to your mind someone or something that might need a little extra tender care and love today, just bring them into your mind and your heart. Just a moment of silence. Just knowing the healing presence of life of this infinite intelligence guides and directs, it heals all feelings of separateness and fear. And so for this and the more I get gratitude and to give so much gratitude for the ways in which we learn and grow and transform and heal, the ways in which this community comes together to share the good, to share our love, to share our kindness with one another in the world. And so for that, I give thanks and let it be. Together let us say Ashe. Namaste. Amazing. But I want to take this moment to know as that the spiritual practice of sacred giving begins with the recognition that it is part of our nature to give and to receive. Our inner life deepens when we make a conscious plan to give. We experience greater satisfaction when we are part of the flow of life. The way to happiness lies in consciously choosing to be a part of the divine flow. This includes being willing to share our lives, our time, our talents, and even our money with others. So at CSO White Rock, we teach that giving is not a practice we should do out of a sense of obligation. Something that we choose to do out of a generous spirit of love and joy. Most importantly, giving is a demonstration of faith that spirit is our source of abundance. So I'd ask you to affirm with me today. I am grateful for my life. 
I'm grateful all that I need flows to me effortlessly through channels expected and unexpected. And I am the instrument of this prosperous life. Thank you. So if you choose to donate to CSL White Rock because we nourish you, we find nourishment in community, there's three ways you can give by check, e-transfer, and online. But <laughs> there we go. And just know, and yeah. And the basket at the back. So thank you for your donations. Thank you for your continued support with us. It keeps us here and keeps us growing so that we can get back full time in person. Mm -hmm.